In this interview, I'm joined by Ralph White, holistic learning pioneer, international speaker on cultural transformation and the history of the Western tradition, and co-founder of the New York Open Center. Ralph reveals his difficult upbringing in working-class England and how his intellect served as his escape route, emigrating to America as a Fulbright scholar in 1970. Ralph shares a life-changing spiritual experience on Route 66, reflects on the role of psychedelics in raising consciousness, and details his personal path as a nature mystic influenced by Western esotericism. Ralph recounts his adventures throughout Canada, hitchhiking to Machu Picchu, getting streetwise in Colombia, and eventually landing in New York to co-found the world-famous Open Center. Ralph also reflects on what years of booking spiritual teachers taught him about spotting fakes, what it means to be in the third act of one's life, and shares his vision for the future of world culture. So without further ado, Ralph White. Ralph White, welcome to the podcast. Pleasure to be here, Steve. Well, I'm very delighted to be interviewing you today. And actually, in preparation for this conversation, I was reading uh, your memoir, The Jeweled Highway. Incredible memoir. I highly recommend it to the listeners. Just the right amount, I think, of introspection and adventure. Some deep introspection, but some really rather wild adventure. And it comes out of nowhere. We'll get to the point where, after taking a break, you decide to take a break from founding the Open Center. You find yourself deep in the Himalayas of hostile Tibet. Uh, this is your holiday, I suppose, your vacation. You know, This is the sort of thing where we have in store for us. But before we get into it, um, it's been six years since that book, The Jewel Highway, was published, 2015 it was. When you look back at it now, I'm wondering, how do you see it? Uh, have your perspectives changed? The world certainly seems to be in a, a very different place. And how do you see the themes of that book in the light of where we are today? Well, I think the, you know, I, I, I feel good about most of the themes that uh, I addressed in there. Of course, it was... It was published during the Obama period, so of course we weren't, we weren't dealing with the nightmare of Donald Trump and the resurgent fascism uh, and so on that we have all around the world in so many different forms. Um, so you could say it was maybe a more optimistic time, but I think that the uh, the deeper themes in there, you know, the spiritual quest, the quest for meaning, um, the need to uh, follow your own path. You know, go with your own instincts for adventure, step outside the mainstream um, and discover the values that are most meaningful to you and seem most relevant to a contribution to life. Uh, I think those themes are pretty enduring, it's just that present political circumstances and of course the, the global warming situation has become even more uh, palpable and apparent in the last six years since that book came out, I might give, give that more emphasis. But overall, the underlying themes, I, I feel, still have uh, relevance. Hmm. Well, perhaps you can set the scene for us then as to how the book starts. You're born in 1949 in, in Wales, but quite quickly in your early life, you've moved to Huddersfield. And you write here, as an adolescent in the industrial north of England, I could see little purpose to human existence. The shadow of two world wars still hung over the culture. The legacy of the Industrial Revolution clung everywhere in my hometown, in the thick black soot that covered the surface of every building. Two hundred years of hard grind and subsistence for the world's oldest working class, centuries of small lives, poor diet, 
and grim labour conditions had left a pall of depression hanging over the place, or so it seemed to me. So can you talk a bit about those early years starting in Wales? And um, That's a pretty good description of Huddersfield in 1958, even if I say so myself. Yes, well, I was born in, you know, uh, just uh, working class parents, really, a, a terraced house. I spent my first four years in a terraced house, Kapartha Street in, uh, in Cardiff. You know, my father had been through the thick of the Second World War, uh, like most of my... Uh, my peers, our fathers had all been, or nearly all of them, in, in the thick of that. Uh, you know, my grandfather had been in the thick of the Battle of the Somme. I mean, we were, we did get out of Cardiff and we moved up to North Wales when I was four or five. And so that was the nicest part of my upbringing, actually. We, we lived in uh, Flandidno, a little place called Penryn Bay, just outside it. And that was really beautiful, exquisite. Um, and... Uh, <laughs> I have many fond memories of that, just the peace, the nature, the beauty, the ocean. Um, but then, yeah, my father got a, uh, he was able to bootstrap his way up through the civil service and um, got a, a promotion uh, to Huddersfield to work in national savings. I mean, you'd be too much young to remember national savings, premium bonds and savings certificates and all that kind of thing. But that's what he wound up doing. Uh, he actually became, it had a very, it sounded like something another heyday of the British Empire, district commissioner for national savings. But in fact, he would drive around, you know, over the moors and so on to mills and factories and schools, encouraging people to save um, money. So, yes, yeah, so that was a rude, rude shock for me at the age of nine to go from the beauty of North Wales to arriving in Huddersfield. I'll never forget waking up that first morning and looking down because we were up on a hill above the town looking down it was just a sea of chimneys belching smoke there must have been 50 or 60 chimneys and I could, you know this was before the clean air act i remember walking to school and you know the the the, the combination of industrial pollution smoke plus you know the, <laughs> the yorkshire moor fog and mist um it, it was I, I literally couldn't see my hand in front of my face you know, my mother's trying to hang out washing on the line. You know, great big chunks of soot are landing on it. I mean, it was a, it was a massive um, adjustment, really probably the most difficult cultural shock I've ever been through in my life, and I've lived in a lot of places. So, yes, it was a kind of, you know, it was a grim world, and uh, I wanted to get the hell out of there at <laughs> the earliest opportunity. And really, the only thing that got me got me through my teenage years in Huddersfield, uh, you know, in the '60s, uh, it was rock and roll. <laughs> it was the Beatles and uh, the Animals and the Mersey Beat, and of course the Stones. It was that whole thing. If you were a teenager in the '60s in the North of England, that's what you had going for you. Had the best music in the world. I'm not sure there's ever been better music for young people. Thank God that was there. So apart from that, and you know warm beer down the local pub <laughs> i mean <laughs> that's how i that's most of my memory from huddersfield i mean for me it was a question of getting out how to get out and uh, so it was going to university for me nobody in my family had ever been to university so that was uh, that was the task for me to get out of there and uh, and that's what i did in 1967 now you go back to Huddersfield, it's, it's really quite nice. I mean, I was gone once for eight years and it was all sandblasted clean. It's like, what? I mean, nobody, nobody told me this beautiful millstone grit was under that whole town. And <clears throat> the whole thing was just 
absolutely covered with a layer of soot, you know, from 150 years or whatever. So today it's a different story. You know, it's got a university and uh, it's all been cleaned up and so on and so forth. But yes, it was a pretty grim manifestation of the Industrial Revolution back in the late 50s. Mm. And for you, the route out that you discerned was education. Yes, as I wasn't very, I would have liked to have been a lead guitarist on a rock and roll. <laughs> Unfortunately, it took me too long to change the chords. <laughs> and, <laughs> or, I wasn't going to be a star rugby or soccer player. I was pretty good. Um, but yes, the way, the way for me out was to get to university. And, uh, and that's what I did. And so, uh, yeah, and, and at the time, the cool place or the hip place was uh, Sussex University in Brighton, you know, which was, um, and it did turn out to be pretty, that was the first of the new universities and it was a very uh, dynamic and uh, liberated place. It was literally Jimi Hendrix at the Student Union and uh, Fleetwood Mac playing for a couple of Bob uh, down the, the King and Queen pub and this kind of thing. Um, but yes, for me, that was, it was a, it had a sense of freedom exploration just to get out of that narrow little world of the north of England um, it was liberating for me and uh, you know I, I wound up doing uh, American studies which was one of the was one of the few places in Britain you could do that at the time and then after I <clears throat> and then I was able to get a gig as a, a graduate uh, teaching assistant in America in Chicago after that so yeah that's that's how I got out but I, I actually enjoyed most of those shows because it's the late 60s 67 to 70 so it's sex drugs and rock and roll you know and all that all the good things that really make my university memorable but um yeah it was a, it was a vital stepping stone for me into a larger world and it was a um yeah, I, you know, my memories of uh, Brighton and Sussex are really pretty colourful. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't all sweetness and light, but the curriculum was pretty imaginative. You could say in, re in retrospect, I would almost say that it was quasi-holistic even, in the sense that we studied more than just our area of specialty for three years. We had contextuals and we were looking at the relations between different disciplines. So yes, I, I actually enjoyed it. I mean, I wasn't the most dedicated student. There was too much going on to be, you know, have your nose to the grindstone all the time. But yes, those years 67 to 70 in Brighton were uh, pretty light-filled ones for me compared to the, you know, the, the sort of grim industrial reality of Huddersfield. How did you catch up? I mean, coming from Huddersfield uh, and having that sort of background, uh, uh, oppressive uh, soot everywhere, uh, low expectations, in fact, anti-expectations. Uh, you described that sort of flavor in the book, a sort of a, a tall poppy thing. How, how did you um, adjust coming to a place like that? You must have, uh, suddenly the brakes are off. You mean Sussex? Um, yeah. Well, it was a bit intimidating initially. I'd never met anybody who'd been to a public school, <laughs> you know, in the British sense of public school. Um, and... Uh, it's like, you know, you're suddenly hearing these upper class accents and this kind of thing. Um, and the kind of, you know, self-confidence that comes with going to a privileged uh, public school. You know, so you felt a bit out. There weren't that many people from the north down there at the time. Um, but uh, I, I actually liked my teachers. There was a guy called David Morse, who was my main tutor in uh, American literature. And... Uh, 
he was a great guy you know it it had a it had an anti-establishment air at that time as the you know and of course this is the end i have vivid memories of vietnam demonstrations in grosvenor square you know 1968 and all of this kind of thing so it was a it was a pretty radical time where people were trying to think outside the box and um so it wasn't stuffy you know i was one of the reasons i was happy not to go to Oxbridge or anywhere like that, because I didn't want that stuffy weight of centuries of tradition, you know, so it was trying to do something new, it was innovative. So, um, yeah, I mean, it took a while to adjust. And also I'd been living in France for three months before, so I hadn't done a lot of reading. I had to get my mind back into um, intellectual focus again, but uh, yeah, it, it went okay. It wasn't too, uh, too difficult seems that uh, education was your route out of Huddersfield, uh, but it wasn't to be your final destination, in fact. It took you to Sussex and then it took you to the States. And yeah. you've written, it was only when I came to America in 1970 that things began to shake loose in the compartments of my mind. Suddenly the shelves of bookstores were filled with volumes I'd never noticed that spoke exactly to my new experiences. I realized that there was a powerful tradition here of Eastern philosophy, Western esotericism, and native shamanism that was entirely outside the acceptable canon of Western education. And in America, that you start to discover an alternative uh, educational route, a more autodidactic one, actually. Yes. <clears throat> well, you know, the big change for me was uh, Christmas of that uh, 1970, the first year I was, you know, I got to Chicago to the university and... Uh, September or so and then um, but it, this is you know the cusp of the 60s and 70s everybody wants to go to California <laughs> so uh, I saw it was a I literally saw an ad a little you know three by five note on the wall in the university library saying co-driver needed to Los Angeles and I thought are you kidding <laughs> I mean you know because the first track of the first album of the Rolling Stones was uh, route 66 if you ever planned a motor west taxi my way take the highway that's the best get your kicks on route 66 and it winds from Chicago to LA more than 2,000 miles all the way so that's what I did so I answered an ad for and uh, she and I met, we uh, clicked and we set off <laughs> and we had an outrageous uh, epic journey down Route 66 into New Arizona, New Mexico, you know, the song names all the places along the way. But for me, it was a spiritual experience when I got down to, there was something, I didn't grow up with a spiritual worldview you know, intellectually far from it. You know, you look around at the world wars, the Holocaust, how could there be some kind of deeper reality in all of this? It just seemed like a horror show. Um, but I found myself then getting into the deserts there, stopping and hearing the pure sound of silence. I remember on the side of a 14th century Native American ruin, hearing the pure sound of silence for the first time. You can hear the blood pounding in your ears. Just the vastness of it all. And of course, the mythic quality, you go up watching Westerns and Cowboys and Indians. You go, oh my God, here I am. I'm in Arizona and I'm in the Wild West. Uh, so uh, it just the stars at night, the silence. Uh, we wound up spending a week in the Santa Catalina Mountains outside Tucson, which is a gorgeous spot. And then we wound up in Big Sur and California and Berkeley. And uh, what can I say? Life was never the same. Um, 
uh, I mean, she was moving to LA to work in the film industry, but uh, I, I had to go back to Chicago, but uh, to finish, you know, my contract at the university. But um, yeah, that was a real spiritual awakening for me. Um, it, was, it was a combination, I think I was 21 years old. It was the landscape and, um, you know, I found out, I, mean, I only found out about four years ago when I had, when I did my DNA, that I'm actually one eighth Native American <laughs> and that my, uh, uh, and that my great grandfather or great grandmother came from Northern Mexico, North Central Mexico. <laughs> so no wonder, you know, it's, you can say, well, it's just a synchronicity, but um, it's a sweet thought anyway, just that I do have some kind of uh, genealogical lineage that goes back into that, the great Southwest, if any of our listeners have been down to the great deserts of uh, the Southwest in the United States and Mexico, they know there's there's magic in there, there's beauty, there's vastness. And so, yeah, that was, that was the turning point for my life because after that, I had these deep spiritual experiences that sort of came out of the blue. Uh, and uh, I felt, look, if these are real and they felt very real, then I better devote myself to exploring this full time. Hmm. And that's what I decided to do. I, I left the university after that first year and um, I went to the West Coast to really explore uh, deeper spiritual reality. Could, could these things, could these experiences be real? And if they were, could, could anything be more important? Yes, you write very powerfully uh, in The Jeweled Highway about that time and you describe it as a, a vast and holy landscape. Hmm. Actually, it's, I think it's a very interesting way of putting it. You've also written, after that first trip out west, nothing was ever the same. Doors opened in my psyche that I didn't even know existed. I discovered a path through life that was about living, authentic spirituality, love, oneness, and meaning, and was as far removed from my dark musings in the bitter, grime-covered streets of my adolescence as I could imagine. So could you say a little bit more about those spiritual experiences? In the book, you write about a sort of opening, uh, an open-heartedness, uh, you, you hint at them. Um, yeah. Could you talk about them uh, in, in, some, in some more detail, perhaps, if there's a story there? Well, you know, it's always, it's hard to describe the ineffable, isn't it? You know, it's hard to put mystical experiences into words there. And words and language are not the realm of mystical experience. So, um, but what can I say about it in general? Um, Um, an overwhelming sense of the transcendent beauty of the world, you know, dawns and sunrises in the great deserts there. Um, a deep sense of uh, inner silence. Um, a spiritual sense of unity with uh, all being and uh, an opening of the heart. Um, and I think maybe more than anything else, just a sense of overwhelming transcendence, a larger reality. Those, you know, Tucson is one of the astronomy capitals of America. So the starlit skies, you know, you're up at three or 4,000 feet. There's, the, the air is dry. Uh, the, you can see the millions of stars. I remember being up on the roof in this house we were staying at in the Santa Catalina Mountains, listening to George Harrison's albums, All Things Must Pass had just come out. And I can hear, remember the strains of All Things Must Pass coming up and looking up at these, the amazing star-filled nights that you would never see in the UK because the, the atmosphere is just too damp. And just having a sense of, 
um, the vast transcendent beauty of the cosmos and our fundamental, my fundamental unity with it. That's, uh, it ain't easy <laughs> to put these things into words, but uh, yeah, I, I mean, a, a sense of um, love, you know, you could say in a way, and maybe not quite that, I had that experience when I got back to Chicago, but a sense of um, ultimately, it's an intuitive feeling, of course, but love being the very motive power or force of the universe and that we are part of that mm. and that we're part of a whole, uh, you know, uh, vast interconnected web of life that uh, is evolving towards deeper spiritual mystery and beauty something like that mm. <laughs> i was gonna say but um yeah so it um it launched me to say look these, if these experiences are real i have to start investigating the literature of this has anybody written about it um and suddenly of course that's what i was saying in the book suddenly i discovered everywhere whether you start off with, you know, the American transcendentalists or whether you look at all the kind of the Eastern mystical paths, or, you know, where suddenly, or whether, you know, I mean, for me, Carl Jung was hugely uh, valuable because for me, Carl Jung united the, uh, you know, the more intellectual skeptical side of myself. I mean, I was basically a pissed off teenage existentialist. <laughs> um, and, uh, and then, you know, the spiritual side. And it was really Jung's work in archetypes, the collective unconscious, um, all of that that made me realize, yes, it did make sense that, that we are connected on a more profound level. These cultures that had no actual physical contact through the archetypes, the mandalas, et cetera, that appear uh, within these cultures, even though there's no physical contact, there's clearly some level of interconnection on a conscious or a superconscious or a collective unconscious level. Hmm. When I read this um, phrase, doors opened in my psyche, it's a little bit reminiscent of uh, Huxley, doors of perception. So, you know, so you mentioned there, and this, you sort of, there's a hint of, of this theme throughout, you never explicitly stated, or you've just dropped Berkeley there. I'm wondering um, how important, if at all, psychedelics were at uh, this time in, in your life or in general for opening up these different uh, doors in the psyche? Yes, well, actually, I just did an event last night with the Open Center exactly on this very theme. And, um, and I just was at a big conference over the weekend called Horizons with 900 people here in New York about the light, latest psychedelic research. And so, of course, we've come a long way since 1969 and 1970. And of course, even in Britain at Imperial College, you've got research going on there here in the States at uh, NYU, at Johns Hopkins, at UCLA, etc. There's all this scientific research going right on right now into psychedelics. I came across it really five or six years ago uh, working with the dying people working mm. psilocybin controlled dose of uh, psilocybin in a clinical setting after screening to stage four cancer patients um 
uh, with my good friend Tony Bossis, uh, who's the main investigator of this, the main session guide. Uh, and it's amazing what they're producing. You know, when they give people psychedelics, they find that uh, these are psychiatrists and psychologists doing this, that 75% of people taking it will have one of the top five most meaningful experiences in their lives. So, uh, yes. So, of course, like we... You don't, well, we didn't speak about it that publicly because, of course, it was all illegal at the time. But, but we know the cultural impact it had on the Beatles and so on. And the good old Moody Blues, I got into listening to the Moody Blues again recently and really enjoyed them. <laughs> they, they were very meaningful to me in the 60s. So, uh, yeah, that was it. It was uh, that trip down um, Route 66. There was nothing, we didn't have any psychedelics with us uh, or anything like that. Um, we were, there was, uh, there was certainly marijuana. I mean, that was the, the counterculture. Uh, but then later, you know, as you know from the book, I, I hitchhiked to Machu Picchu and uh, lived in uh, Colombia for a year and then in, again in California. Um, so by the time I got to my uh, early mid twenties, I'd, you know, already drunk sufficiently deeply from that realm, had many beautiful experiences. Um, and uh, was more deeply convinced than ever of the real, the deeper spiritual realities. But then my focus came, became on doing that without that kind of assistance. And then of course, educating people about the whole worldview that emerges from a more holistic and ecological and spiritual perspective. Hmm. What do you see as the future of psychedelic use now that, as you say, it's being used in, uh, experimented with and researched uh, so widely. Um, there are, I think, in that community, different opinions about where might this go? Yeah. Um, you know, uh, you mentioned their uh, use of psilocybin on, on the dying. Another, I think, interesting takeaway from that uh, research is that it seems to uh, completely remove the fear of death. <laughs> So proximity in quite a high percentage of people, being as they are so close to death and being as it is such a pressing thought, yeah, yeah. I suppose, taking the psilocybin, many of them report a totally, total reorientation to their uh, rapidly impending death. Amazing. Yes. It's, yeah, we had uh, the, the three uh, scientists, uh, psychologists, psychiatrists who did that research at, LI, LI, at NYU, New York University. Uh, gave their first presentation at an open center conference on the art of dying. And yes, it's extremely impressive. I mean, the, the results are just phenomenal. They are off the charts. And uh, when you think that, you know, the medicine cabinet of psychiatry is not really very substantive these days, apart from, well, I mean, I'm no authority, but pro, you know, Prozac and Xanax and things like this. They're, they, you know, they take a long time and they have the, uh, mixed effects or in many cases they're not very effective or they don't last whereas these in the cases of giving people psilocybin uh, when they're dealing with intense existential anxiety massive distress around death the results were just phenomenal and you can see there's a film there are various films about it that actually interview people who were part of the trial and uh, it's very very moving so yes, there's, so there's that. The other thing, a lot of the research that's going on at uh, Johns Hopkins now in Baltimore, one of America's leading um, medical universities, among other things, uh, they're working with addiction. So nicotine, alcohol, um, they're now working with uh, clinical depression as well. 
And there's even some trials going on with anorexia. You know, some of these things are gonna work out more than others. Uh, there's, <laughs> there are even trials now, though, although the results are not yet available for publication of <clears throat> working with creative people, with artists, seeing how it affects them. And these are one of the most interesting trials that's going on is, um, with religious professionals. <laughs> so it'll be fascinating to see how, uh, I don't know how many mullahs doing it, but mullahs and rabbis and vicars and all the rest of it. I mean, if these guys are supposed to be the experts on spiritual experience. So, uh, but let me mention probably the, bigger, the biggest uh, scientific trial that's going on right now. I think it's a $30 million trial. Um, is being conducted by MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies and the wonderful Rick Dobbin, who was just with us last night, who's the founder of that. Um, they, that is a huge study, it's phase three study now. So it's the last phase before it receives approval on the use of MDMA, otherwise known as ecstasy, with post-traumatic stress disorder. <clears throat> PTSD, and it's extraordinary the people were donating to that. I mean, um, the uh, the Navy SEAL Foundation, you know, the equivalent of the SBS, um, they have just chipped in thousands of dollars because they've got so many of their members who are just massively traumatized. They've seen so much, they, their psyches just can't process it. It's very moving to see these people who've been on the edge of um, suicide. They have, have barely had a peaceful moment in years and years just being haunted by flashbacks and uh, depression and self-hatred and this kind of thing. Speaking about how um, just one or two sessions with uh, MDMA has been completely transforming. It's given them a moment where those tape loops that are repeatedly, repeatedly going through the mind uh, stop for a minute and they have a moment of peace and they can glimpse a way of being outside it. Anyway, Rick Doblin's the man who can really speak about this uh, in depth. You might want to interview him in future, he's a great guy. Um, so yes, I would say that's, that's huge now. PTSD with MDMA and, and the other things, fear of death, addiction, et cetera, depression primarily with uh, psilocybin. Hmm. I'm curious, something that you also hint at uh, it, throughout the book, but, uh, but don't go into great deal of detail. Is your own personal, I suppose, what you might say, practice, meditational practice? Of course, you do talk about uh, various figures that you become involved with and teachings that if you've been influenced by, uh, you, you, do, you do talk about that. There is one moment, a particularly low point on that Tibet journey, which we'll talk about, where you refer to your lifetime of meditation practice and you, in fact, have to draw on it um, right. when you hit a sort of rock bottom. Um, could you perhaps detail a little bit what has been your meditation practice uh, and, and what other sort of modalities that you'd put in that same that same category? What's been your personal practice uh, yeah. throughout well, your life? It's, it's a, it, I, have, I can't say it's been the same. You know, it started off with just more simple, what today would be called mindfulness, because mindfulness is everywhere to the extent that it's called mindfulness, but just being present in the moment. Uh, I'm not, I have a kind of Zen predisposition. Um, so in my 20s, I was more into that vein of, uh, of meditation. Um, but in, as the, the older I've got, the more I've been attracted to uh, the Western esoteric tradition. As uh, you know from the book, I've run a, 
a 25 year series of conferences now called esoteric quests that are really to do with bringing alive the Western esoteric tradition. Because in the holistic world, you know, that I inhabit Buddhism and yoga and shamanism, etc, ubiquitous, but the Western tradition, which is so deep and so beautiful, but it's had to go underground through the inquisition and war and all the rest of it is, is less visible. So my own practice has become more coming out of that world. I mean, I'm a, I'm a longtime fan of Rudolf Steiner. I got into Steiner in Hawaii back in, uh, I, I hiked this ancient Hawaiian trail back after the first year of uh, the Open Center in 85 and uh, and Kauai, the far west of Kauai, the Nepali coastline trail it was one of the most gorgeous experiences I ever had. And when I got back from that, I was very chilled out and it was raining one day <laughs> and I got in my tent, opened up this book by Steiner, Rudolf Steiner, The Tension Between East and West, because I figured Hawaii is a good place to read a book with a name like that. And boom, I just walked into a world. I read the first chapter of that. And it's like, oh, my God, this guy is right on my wavelength. And so I've, I've read an enormous amount of Rudolf Steiner. My own meditation practice tends to come from that field. I'm not a card carrying member of the Anthroposophical Society. I'm a free spirit, but I'm a great lover of Anthroposophia and I admire Rudolf Steiner. Uh, as a spiritual teacher, a philosopher, and an incredible reformer. I mean, look what he did in agriculture and medicine and uh, schools and uh, biodynamics and all the rest of it. So um, my spiritual practice is, um, it, it's more a meditation upon certain um, esoteric verses that I would live into, the, the meaning of each one. Um, but then coupled with, let's say I might go through that a certain prepared, there's a meditation I learned years ago from an esoteric group in Cyprus, actually. A <laughs> um, friend of mine is a professor of sociology at the University of Maine, but he, he grew up in Cyprus and he's been connected to an esoteric group there. And he, he taught me a wonderful meditation many years ago, uh, which is to do with different uh, colors uh, in the different aspects of the subtle body. And so I've been doing that for years. I've been doing, it's a preparatory meditation. Is it where it gets you in? You know, here, I live in New York, so I'm often not in the most chilled, relaxed, mellowed, meditative state of mind. I haven't just come back from a walk in the Peak District. You know, I'll probably come up with dealing with some crazy situation in New York. So I have to chill out for a while, you know, you have to, a, a sort of preparatory thing that gets you into the meditative, meditative space. So it would be things like that. And then when I'm in the meditative space, it's really, um, and because I've been doing it a long time, you know, I can usually get there. Then where do, what do I choose to do with that focused attention? So that it, is there some issue that is troubling me or engaging me that I want to just engage with and allow it to speak to me? in some way or do i just want to go into an experience of uh, inner peace and calm you know nothing like lighting a candle and putting on a bit of incense you know these are just triggers to get you into that meditative state <clears throat> so um yeah, and you know, I am basically a nature mystic even though I'm a New Yorker. I'm a nature mystic. So for me, I was just in Florida uh, a week and a half ago on an island in Florida and uh, you can't beat a sunset or a sunrise in nature. Um, and just to be, you know, I remember being in the Andes 
uh, <laughs> I did have some psychedelic experiences in the Andes. I can remember one, you know, the, the Kahootic, uh, in Bogota in 1973, it was the, um, the total eclipse of the sun, Bogota, we, and then it was also the Kahootic Comet. So yeah, I, a group of friends of mine, we went up to the top of a mountain. <laughs> that was definitely one of the deeper spiritual slash psychedelic experiences I've ever had in my life. That was phenomenal. Let's talk about macrocosm meeting microcosm. Um, so, you know, for me, it's a variety of things. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's being present in the moment, really. It's being open-hearted. It's wanting to contribute to the world, to be of service to the planet in whatever way you can do. And it's gaining spiritual nourishment however you can through now. And I'm sitting here, fortunately, I have a window in my apartment. I'm looking out at the Manhattan skyline and the East River beyond that. And there's some trees before that. So I, you know, having a big vista, not being stuck in a little cramped claustrophobic space is important to me in terms of my own spiritual well-being. So I would say all of those, you know, meditation, contemplation, attunement to nature, service to consciousness or to humanity. And, um, you know, in the pra I mean, I'm a big supporter of uh, a multicultural future. You know, I live in Queens. I've lived in Queens, Queens, New York for 20 odd years. It's the mo world's most multicultural place. <laughs> you know, at last count, we spoke 183 different languages here and counting. So don't tell me that uh, multiculturalism doesn't work. I live in it and I've lived in the middle of it. And we, you know, we get along pretty well too. New York is actually the safest uh, big city in America, believe it or not. Certainly wasn't that when we started the Open Center in 84, it was mayhem. So yeah, all of those things is how, how I approach my own personal path. It's not just, you know, what's the point of going on that inner journey? You know, um, to some kind of deeper reality, stepping outside the norms of the culture that brought you up. If you don't bring it back, you've got to bring it back and you know, make a contribution. So otherwise it just can turn into a kind of new age narcissism. If it's all, all it's about is your spiritual practice, your wellness, you know, your therapy or whatever it may be. Um, it's about you know, trying to bring this holistic perspective, holistic and ecological and spiritual perspective into the transformation of our culture. And I guess that's why I suppose I wound up in New York City, because if you're going to try and do, do it anywhere, because, <laughs> you know, when we started in 84, the conventional wisdom was get out of here. You know, this is New York. This is the real world. Maybe California, maybe Hawaii, but get out. Nobody's interested in, in New York. <laughs> and that's certainly not the case. Hmm. Yeah, lots of themes there. We're going to come back to some of that. In fact, starting the Open Center is is somewhat an expression of that, going from Omega to the Open Center, as you did, an expression of that idea of the real world and so on. But we'll come back to that, I think, in the timeline. But I'm curious, you know, Western esotericism, when you hear that word, I think many people think, okay, what do we think? Crowley, uh, a Golden Dawn, uh, Theosophy, maybe Steiner. You know, um, that, that I think that would be maybe the first the first touch points in in the general consciousness. Of course, there's a great deal of contemplative, uh, meditative technology there, or methods and so on, and quite um, the sorts of philosophies that perhaps those selection of names, maybe Steiner aside, w wouldn't suggest. Um, what can you say about the thread of Western esotericism? 
uh, and its um, practices. What sort of misconceptions do you think you encounter when you know? Of course, you've been running these these conferences and so on. What what sort of conceptions do you misconceptions do you encounter, and what does it mean to you? What has it meant to you as a practitioner? Well, you know, you get all the baloney, you know, all the ridiculous horror movies that are about the occult. You know, they have nothing to do. I mean, yeah, you know, people hear that word. I mean, I don't use the word occult very often, but um, they associate esoteric with, and they think, oh, it's black magic. It's, you know, rituals with people in cloaks and daggers and blood sacrifices and, you know, whatever the latest idiocy of it is. I've never paid any attention to any of that myself. Um, you either get a blank stare, you know, people, <laughs> people know about Buddhism, um, uh, or yes, the things that you would suggest, they might think of Aleister Crowley and the Golden Dawn, and you know, maybe, um, and the sort of, you know, late 19th, early 20th century magical practices, maybe people know that Yeats was a part of the Golden Dawn. Um, it, it would be a pretty vague impression, and, and I suspect it's, uh, people imagine it's, kind of perverse forms of magical stuff and ritual. I don't really know, you know, I don't talk to those people um, and I don't pay any attention to those kinds of films or those books. So, uh, so what I would say, you know, my experience is of course, it's a golden thread or a golden chain. It's a very beautiful golden chain. And it's a question of how far back do you want to go with it? I mean, with our esoteric quests, probably the we done the mysteries of antiquity. We did a conference on the Isle of Samothrace or Samothraki in the northeast Aegean, uh, which was the site of the, the mysteries there for, for a thousand years, one of the great mystery centers, the, the sanctuary of the great gods on Samothrace. Um, so you can start, say, with there, you can go back even further, but that's it's hard to go back further in terms of uh, any evidence. Um, then we went into Alexandria, you know, the city of Alexandria, because most people when they go to Egypt, just, you know, they're in Cairo, they see the pyramids, and then they got the Nile to Luxor. But Alexandria was the cultural capital of antiquity for 700 years. When, when Julius Caesar got there, it was four times the size of Rome. And of course, you know, the whole, the library of Alexandria, the Ptolemies, the fact that Alexander was the student of Aristotle, who's the student of Plato. Ptolemy was one of his generals. And uh, he founded this incredible dynasty of which Cleopatra was the last. But <clears throat> I mean, the, the Alexandria is the birthplace of so many elements of the Western tradition. So, Gnosticism, you know, Neoplatonism. There's uh, this this Hermeticism, you know, the Hermes Trismegistus in California in the 70s. Everybody knew. They may not know much about the Western esoteric tradition, but everybody had heard of the the Emerald Tablet of Hermes Trismegistus, and the mo and the most famous phrase, um, and the most famous phrase from it, "As above, so below." <laughs> Now, what, what does that mean? <laughs> but of course, that role these, oh yeah, the Emerald Tablet, as above, so below. So, um, you know, it's, a, it's of course, it's about the correspondence between the microcosm and the macrocosm and the human being being a microcosm of the, uh, the universe. Um, so, you know, and then all the way up through there, of course, in, in the Renaissance, you've got a, a beautiful uh, emanation of it with the, the uh, Platonic Academy of Marsilio Ficino there, founded by the Medici's in, the, in uh, 
just outside Florence. So, I mean, yeah, we did an outrageous uh, conference on the, the Italian Renaissance and the esoteric traditions. Uh, we included Kabbalah there, you know, Christian Kabbalah as well as Jewish Kabbalah. So um, I don't want to miss out uh, our friends, particularly your friends, the Vikings. <laughs> You'll have to tell me how you came up with Guru Viking as a title, but I mean, we did a great esoteric quest in Iceland. Uh, out, out in the far west, the Snæfellsnes Peninsula, um, beneath a sacred mountain. And then we did a post-conference journey to the West Fjords of Iceland. Um, and so there's a whole, you know, there's the mysteries of the North. There are mysterious places like Kalanish. What is there that might indicate that? I know this sounds absolutely ridiculous, but could there have been some kind of civilization that came down from the North rather than the usual story that it all came up from the South? Certainly there's a lot of very uh, enigmatic stuff up in, up in the North. So, you know, we've done a couple of Northern quests and I want to do a third one in Lapland actually but we, we did Iceland and we did the Outer Hebrides actually we did the Isle of Lewis as well where the Celtic and the Norse meet so um, you can follow this golden thread all the way up through you know we did one in uh, an esoteric quest in Central Europe from Renaissance Bohemia because that's where it all began the very first one in 1995 was in a little town called Chesky Krumlov um, which I stumbled across. Uh, I happened to be with a friend and uh, she was German. So nobody, uh, this is this was a very remote, obscure little town in the Samaba mountains of uh, Southern Bohemia. But when I was there and right after communism ended, you, you know, people only spoke Czech, Russian and German, but, but we, you know, we arrived there. It was the most magical vibe I'd ever encountered. And then it turned out it was the Southern Bohemian Mecca of alchemists with uh, some of our listeners would be familiar with John Dee, you know, the, the Magus at Queen Elizabeth's course. And it was the Rosenbecks, Willem and Petervok Rosenbeck, these counts in Southern Bohemia, who actually protected John Dee from the intrigues of the, uh, of the Jesuits back in the 16th century there. So there's all of that, you know, and then we did, as I was saying, an esoteric quest in Central Europe from Renaissance Bohemia to Goethe's Weimar. That's about as much as modern as we've got, because of course, you know, Goethe and Schiller and Weimar bring all of this stuff back into the modern world after the Thirty Years' War has destroyed it, because we've got that beautiful period that the historian, the great British historian Francis Yates, called the Rosicrucian Enlightenment. It was the last time when magic and spirituality, where science and spirituality were still united. And, um, and then we stumbled into the horrors of the Thirty Years' War, the defenestration of Prague. Do they still put that on exam papers in England? <laughs> and uh, discuss the defenestration of Prague. Of course, it was the start of the Thirty Years' War. And by the time we stumbled out of that, uh, you know, we were in the modern age, the mechanistic, materialistic worldview. And that whole meeting of magic and spirituality and science was gone until modern times. Of course, that's Rudolf Steiner's go. He calls what his work spiritual science. We want to have that same rigorous scientific perspective, but applying it to the inner world, not just the outer sense perceptible world. So that gives you, you know, that's basically, I will go into all the different uh, quests that we've done, but um, the next one I think is going to be in Portugal and uh, where people don't, people don't know the Knights Templar, you know, we all know that they were horribly murdered 
and oppressed, but I hadn't known that the Knights Templar went on for another century in Portugal under a different name. They changed, and that the, the Portuguese, Portugal had a troubadour king, King Denis, who was able to work out an arrangement with the Pope for the Templars to go on. And in fact, Prince Henry the Navigator, you know, who, who opened up the whole world to Europe, he was the Grand Master of the, the Knights of Christ, as they called themselves, but they were basically the Knights Templar. So anyway, it just goes on and on. And there's, there's, so I hope that gives you something of a sense of the, uh, it's not this baloney, you know, crazy occult magical rituals to do with dire things. It's a beautiful stream of wisdom. But as I said earlier, you've got to engage in a form of, you know, spiritual excavation as it were, because it's it's gone underground, you know. I mean, the only virtue of the horrible invasion of, uh, of Tibet by a Chinese communist was that you had the Tibetan diaspora. So you've at least you've got people attuned to deep Tibetan wisdom all over the planet. But, but where's the Western tradition? You've got to figure it out for yourself. So I like that. I like that quality of discovery that you have to go and find things. I mean, when I stumbled across Chesky Krumlov in 92 or whatever that was, um, none of my Czech friends knew anything about it absolutely nothing and I only knew about it through Francis Yates so I spent years I said look you should do a major event here I mean this was a turning point in western civilization but because they'd had 300 years of the Habsburgs then the Nazis then the communists I mean it was not you know a can-do mentality although it's changed I'm sure since then so we have to pull this stuff up, you know, through our own reading, our own explanations. And, and you know, and then there's a, there's a lot of wonderful writers like Jocelyn Godwin and, uh, and Christopher McIntosh and uh, Leonard George. And there's, you know, there's a lot of wonderful writers out there doing their own research, bringing these eras alive. And it's important for us to reclaim it as part of our own spiritual heritage. It's not just the Church of England or Methodism or, you know, or the Catholic Church or whatever. That, you know, I mean, there are good people in all of those things. I've got nothing against them <laughs> when they're approached in the right way. But, uh, but we have to, you know, we have to claim it. It's not just the spiritual stuff. Look, it's understandable that it started off with the Beatles going to India. Of course, it goes way beyond that. But in modern times, in my lifetime, and, you know, the Maharishi and all of that, all the Eastern paths, it's perfectly understandable that we'd look for that or we go to the Amazon and ayahuasca and shamanism. Yes, well, absolutely, why not? Um, but the fact is, it doesn't necessarily have to be that exotic. It doesn't have to be the Amazon. It doesn't have to be the Himalayas. They're right in our own backyard. And I do. I would like to do a conference in, in the UK once on uh, really inspired by Francis Yates, the historian at the Warburg Institute, you know, on the, the occult philosophy and the Elizabethan age. That's one of her great books, her last book, I think. So, um, because it, it just shows that the whole period of the Elizabethan period with Shakespeare and Dee and all that, it, it was permeated with what they called the more powerful philosophy. Um, and so it's, it's really part of our heritage. It's not weird and alien and other, it's part of who we are. So that's why I like to do it. Yeah, it's marvelous to hear you talk about those things. Speaking of, of writers, one of my gateway drugs many years ago into, into that whole uh, field was the writings of Arthur Verschluss, the uh, professor, of course. And I've actually had the pleasure uh, of interviewing him a couple of times on this, on this channel about these things. And yeah, it is fascinating. And, you know, I want to point out that you're, you're making reference to these conferences. And actually, this is a series of conferences that you organized. The first one, as you said there in 92, 
when you went there in 92, you thought we should have a conference here. Um, and then you wrote to all the writers of uh, Western esotericism that you respond, that you admired. And to your great surprise and shock, they all said yes. Every single person <laughs> said yes. I thought this was a wild gamble. Nobody had ever heard of this. because today people have heard of Chesley Krumlov, but 30 years ago they had. And uh, yeah, every, there was one person who was no longer giving any public talks, but every single other person said yes. And that's why Gnosis Magazine, American Magazine of the Western Inner Traditions, called it an esoteric Woodstock, because, um, I mean, literally, all the great players were there. It was an unforgettable experience. And uh, including the great poet Robert Bly, you know, I don't know if you know him. He died recently, because people think of him in terms of, I just, I actually just wrote an appreciation of him, um, which will be published tomorrow by the Open Center. Because he was a wonderful man. He was in many of our esoteric quests. And people think of him in terms of Iron John and the men's work. And all. I mean, that's all well and good. That's not how I relate to him mostly. He was an, just an amazingly soulful poet. I'll never forget him giving a reading in the Renaissance room of the castle of Chesky Krumlov, of Sufi and Rosicrucian poetry by candlelight. Uh, you know, Robert Bly was really a, a deeply spiritual person, but he had that sort of gruff, forbidding, I don't know if you ever met him, but a very gruff, forbidding exterior, but he was an absolute sweetheart, a great guy. I should send you my uh, little appreciation of him that I just wrote. And um, yeah. So fascinating. Let's then jump back into the timeline. Uh, I think the next uh, point is you, you decided you wanted to go west. You finished up in Chicago and you wanted to go west and you ended up actually in Vancouver. I did. Um, let's see here. Uh, you write, as 1971 advanced, I felt increasingly clearly that I had to dedicate myself to discovering whether the spiritual experiences I had and continued to have back in the city were real. As summer approached, I decided to head for the West Coast, modern home of cosmic consciousness, to apply myself fully to esoteric and mystical studies. Staying in the United States was impractical, as the Vietnam War still raged, so I headed for British Columbia, Canada, to the city of Vancouver. I knew nothing about the place, but had heard that it was beautiful. I felt a tremendous affinity with the West after my journey, uh, with no desire to return to Britain. Although you did actually re return to Britain uh, before your trek to Manu uh, Machu Picchu. Could you say a little about that time in Vancouver? I believe that's also where you really discovered Jung. Um, and a little bit about your trip back to the States. And then I think uh, I can't wait to ask you about Machu Picchu. <laughs> the only reason I came back to Britain, it was a woman. <laughs> and, uh, it was not, <laughs> and that was not one of the wiser things I ever did. Um, but yeah, um, uh, yeah, Vancouver. Well, you know, Vancouver is and was the Canadian San Francisco. And I would say it was even, it was at least, if not more countercultural in the early seventies than San Francisco itself, it was everywhere. Um, for me, well, because it was a lonely time. I, I'd gone there for spiritual reasons, really, to, to pursue these deeper truths, but I didn't know anybody. And um, 
books and I didn't have a green card. I mean, they call it landed, uh, landed immigrant, I think, or yeah, in, uh, in Canada. I didn't have a legal right to work. So I just had to patch together a few jobs here and there. I, I was flogging the uh, Canada's first ecology magazine <laughs> called The Canadian Conservationist. It was this guy who printed it. I was going out and trying to sell it door to door, making a quarter on each sale. <laughs> you know, but it was also while I was living in Vancouver, that was when Greenpeace set up up to Amchitka, you know, to try to stop that uh, explosion. And of course, it was also the time when people were concerned that if if they set off that nuclear trigger on the uh, on the fault lines, the San Andreas Fault, then the whole of the West Coast was, <laughs> was going to sp split off and slide into the ocean. <laughs> And so people, what were they going to do? Were they going to head for the mountains or just stay in uh, stay in Vancouver, ride it out and drop a head of acid? You know, I knew people who were doing all those <laughs> different <laughs> options. So, um, yeah. Uh, so, but it was, it was a wonderful place for me. Uh, a little, literally, a, virtually a hole in the wall called the Banyan Books. It was just around the corner from this little flat I was staying in. And it had just opened up. The guy who owned it had just got back from India. And I could go in there and you didn't have to buy anything. You could read. It had, you know, it was a small space, but book-lined walls, spiritual teachers, the air, you know, perfume with incense. You, were, you could just sit and nobody hassled you to buy anything. So I spent hours and hours in there reading. And of course, it was exactly on my, this was exactly what I wanted to read. Later, when the book came out, I did a West Coast book tour. I did a reading there. Now, it's now Canada's, or certainly West Coast Canada's leading source of holistic and spiritual books. It's, you know, it's been a huge success story. Um, so that was so, but, but it was a rough time. You know, uh, I, I was pretty broke and uh, didn't have, uh, you know, the legal permission to work. So, it, it, yeah, and so it was a tough time. And then, you know, uh, I'd gone with a girlfriend and then she'd gone back to England. And then I, uh, you know, I was missing her. So I went back, but it was a big, big mistake. I couldn't wait to get out of England. It was just, it was just, it was an awful winter. It was damp, you know, I mean, there's a lot of things about Britain that I love, but I don't love the weather. I, I take the new, we got a lot more sunshine here in New York, but those endless gray, damp days, it was one of those winters, or maybe it was just my mood, but it was just that gray, miserable, damp, you know, living in a little apartment in London where you had to put a shilling in the meat. And, and you remember, you, you all don't remember, maybe they just still have them there where you put a shilling in the meter just to get a little bit of heat out of a freezing apartment. <laughs> it's amazing how people lived in those days. Um, so yeah, that was not a good time. It, it was just, I just had to get out of there. And uh, so, so I did eventually get back to Vancouver and then um, I got a job. I did get my green, no, what do they call it? Landed immigrant status so I could work. And so I got a gig working as an emergency night inspector for what was called, what it's called, the RSPCA actually, it's just called the, the SPCA in Canada. So I was an emergency night inspector. I, I'd take emergency calls, you know, if an animal had been hit. Um, I had to jump in my animal ambulance with my walkie-talkie with the, with the Mounties, you know, the RCMP, out to the scene of the accident where, you know, the dog would be in pain and the owners, if they were there, were hysterical. But it was, and then they'd expect some guy in a you know, in an RSPCA uniform to get out of, and this long-haired hippie in a leather jacket to sort of stumble out of the, 
stumble out of the, uh, the ambulance. Um, so that, that's how I actually made the money to hitchhike to Machu Picchu by working as a night inspector for the SPCA. <laughs> and of course, there were, there were plenty of nights where I was not disturbed by anything except some guy and some Native American guy who wanted to come down and shoot me because <laughs> well, that's a whole other story. So um, yeah, that's how I made the money. And then one day I was sitting in Vancouver and I saw a picture of Machu Picchu on the TV. And of course, everybody knows Machu Picchu today, but this is 1972, I think. I knew nobody who had ever been south of, I knew Mexico. I knew one family had been to Guatemala. They'd driven there in their VW bus, but that was it. And of course it was before Lonely Planets, not to mention internet cafes. So uh, I just had this intuitive feeling, I gotta go. I want to go. There was such a sense of mystery and beauty about it. And not only that, but, you know, the, the, all the pre-Columbian cultures, the, the pyramids of Teotihuanaco, Teotihuanaco in Bolivia, etc. that whole pre-Columbian culture that was completely and utterly mysterious. I mean, there I was for my age, you know, 22, 23, a relatively educated Westerner, but I knew nothing about these amazing pre-Columbian cultures. Um, so, uh, yeah, I just had this immediate instinct, well, I'm going to go there. And uh, so we, um, yeah, I, I knew somebody who was an adventurer too. She had, uh, she had traveled through Afghanistan <laughs> you know, in the late 60s and uh, Jeannie Square Bricks. And uh, I, I originally said, well, why don't we, let's go to Mexico for the winter because, you know, those Vancouver winters are long and dreary. <laughs> so while those Brits live there, they're used to the rain. Um, but I, I'd had, and so I said, let's go to Mexico for winter. And, and then it's, no, no, forget about Mexico. Let's go to Machu Picchu. So we did, we set off to hitchhike to Machu Picchu. And I can still remember it's January the 3rd, 1973. And uh, she turned back in uh, Central America and, and Costa Rica, but I went on and uh, did actually make it to Machu Picchu, yeah. Setting off in the back of a van driven, you write, by Canada's only self-employed deaf-mute. <laughs> I know. Well, Jeannie, you see, she got her gig was she was working in the post office to make money. I'm working as an SPCA inspector. You know, we were counterculture people. So, yeah, she knew somebody through the post office, this guy who was literally Canada's only self-employed deaf-mute. He had a cleaning business. And so actually we got turned back at the US border because he had all his cleaning equipment on the roof of the van. But yeah, you know, he was deaf and his wife was deaf, but they had a son who was in the back of the van on a foam rubber pad with Jeannie and me. And <laughs> he could speak perfectly normally. But yeah, they turned us back because they thought he was gonna work illegally. We had to drop all the cleaning equipment. But basically we got a 2000 mile ride from Vancouver to uh, Puerto Vallarta, I think it was. In, uh, Oh, Mazatlan, Mazatlan, I think, in uh, on the west coast of Mexico. Hmm. So, uh, yeah, that was that was that was a great ride. Well, that whole uh, journey set off another phase in your life. Actually, like as you mentioned before, living in Colombia for a year um, after having uh, reached Machu Picchu, and there's actually so much in uh, in your book about that period. Um, could you say a little? So I don't think we can possibly cover all of it. And I, I do recommend highly that the listener or viewer checks this out in the book. This passage is, is, is quite uh, remarkable indeed. Could you talk a little bit about Machu Picchu? It's very transformational when you got there. Really quite a life-changing moment for you. And also, how it was you came to live in Colombia for a year after that? Yeah. <laughs> 
I'm glad I can laugh about it after all these years. Um, well, you know, it did take me six months to get to Machu Picchu. And uh, I, I joined forces with some friends along the way. I met in Ecuador, a, a Colombian woman leader. Uh, which was invaluable because, you know, because she spoke fluent Spanish and she was also expert at <laughs> twisting truck drivers around her little finger to get us rides. Um, so, but when I got there, yes, uh, we were very fortunate. I was in, I was there again three or four years ago and oh my God, it's unrecognizable. It's just like a huge tourist uh, operation now. But uh, we got up there, we, I, I had, so, well, I was a cross country runner, you know, when I was at grammar school. So I still had that. So I literally ran, you know, you stay in this little, there was not even a town. There were just Aguas Calientes, this, this little town that's at the base of Machu Picchu on the Urubamba River. Um, it was just some shacks when I was there. But anyway, we stopped off there, dropped off there by the train. And then I ran up or walked up to Machu Picchu with the cliff and leader. And it was fairly late afternoon. And when we got, there weren't many people there. And, um, and they left not long afterwards. And there were no guards or something saying, you know, it's sunset, get out of here. It was all very loose. And we were completely uh, alone um, at the hitching post of the sun in Machu Picchu. And it was just, um, it was worth every step of the, 5,000 miles or wherever it was to get there. Um, yes, it was an extraordinary scene. The, the clouds just descended and formed uh, the roof of a, of a huge natural amphitheater. You know, Machu Picchu is at an 8,000 8, foot peak, but it's, and then there's the Urubamba River down below, and then there's the higher mountains uh, around it. And so the clouds came down, they turned this exquisite lilac color. There was just it was just total silence. The only sound you could hear was the rushing of the Urubamba River, which makes a big U-turn right at the base of Machu Picchu. And we were just alone there, uh, surrounded by the mysteries of the Andes. And uh, it just became very clear to me that there are certain sacred places on the face of the earth. You know, it doesn't matter whether there's a church or a temple or a whatever, a mosque or something, wherever it is, or an old stone circle. Um, there are places that are, they're emanations of the subtle energies of the, uh, of the earth. And, uh, you know, I would say the Incas, and I'm sure many pre-Columbian cultures before them were very attuned to this because wherever they built, you know, I was just at the, um, Temple of Viracocha a few years ago, which is between Cusco and uh, and Lake Titicaca, and that's another one of those places. Well, Viracocha, the celestial father god, um, they were very attuned to it. So it just gave me it gave me a sense. Look, look, there's there are there's knowledge, there's wisdom to do with the earth that goes beyond modern Western science, um, and there are subtle forces and sacred places. And um, it's time to bring that knowledge back and to reclaim these lost cultures and to reclaim the, you know, the wisdom, the attunement, the spiritual attunement to the earth, which of course the alchemists had and the indigenous peoples had and that we have lost so grotesquely. And of course, that's what led us, has led us into the massive 
ecological crisis and you know the global warming catastrophe global heating catastrophe so i would say all of those things it was i was only there one night uh, but it was enough it was just one of those perfect experiences that was worth every step of that six month journey and it um, it deepened my inner spiritual convictions about the more profound mysteries that the world is filled with profound mysteries and we're only just scratching the surface and materialistic science doesn't it, it's great in a certain respect it gives us a certain you know, knowledge of the world but it's certainly not complete in itself you know as you're as you're describing this you went through a great deal of difficulty and hardship to get to Machu Picchu um, I'm also but but also when you, you traveled route 66 one gets the sense that the intensity of your experience of that, as you put it, vast and holy land, uh, took you somewhat by surprise. You sorted out in Machu Picchu, but Route 66, you had an intuition of some sort, a leaning, but I don't, it doesn't sound like you really expected to happen what, uh, to happen to you, what happened to you. Yeah, I think it was a step in that direction, but yeah, it was, it was not as powerful. Well, it was powerful in its own way. It was the right thing. Because, you know, it was all mixed up at that time with, you know, cowboys and Indians. And, oh, I can, you know, I'm driving through Lubbock, Texas. This is where Buddy Holly is from. I mean, I'm a lad from Huddersfield. I mean, you know, I mean it was all of that. Whereas, by the, because by the time I got to Machu Picchu, I already read a fair a lot of uh, spiritual, esoteric literature. You know, I, I was much more sophisticated. I was just, you know four months after leaving Sussex uh, when, I had, when I was down in the, the southwestern deserts. So I, they were complementary, I'd say. They were, they were equally necessary steps along the way. I suppose my, my, my point is, or my question is, it was a pilgrimage in a sense, and the characters you met and so on, it's reminiscent of other great pilgrimages. And in your book, you also reference the Grail Quest and this sort of idea. Do you think it's necessary for somebody to uh, go through that uh, pilgrimage of sorts, inner or outer, to um, contact the sorts of things that you contacted in, well, certainly on Route 66, and also perhaps more directly in Machu Picchu. Is it necessary that one goes to that? You've also done many journeys, quests, taking people to these places, having conferences and so on. So I'm wondering what your insight is there in terms of introducing people to these sorts of experiences must they must they have a pilgrimage is that a necessary precursor to the sort of thing you're talking about um you know where well, we have such a different cultural landscape today you know there are holistic centers all over you know there's the open centers and the esalens and omegas and uh, findhorn and all over europe uh, so it's it's almost a you know, all that stuff that's in, that is taught at these centers or that is in so many books, it was not available 50 years, God, is it 50, it is, it's 50, God, it's embarrassing, it's 50 years ago. And uh, <laughs> so you can, you can, you know, you don't necessarily have to hitchhike to Machu Picchu uh, the way I did. <clears throat> of course, many people just fly there and unfortunately it's not the same quality of experience. But you can access, yes, you can access, you know, whether it's retreats or whether it's esoteric quests, um, the information and the practices and the culture, you know, we kind of approve. I mean, with, uh, I remember, you know, I did spend time at Finton in the late 70s and we were into stuff. We were into solar panels and, of course, organic agriculture and windmills. I just saw that. 
the solar panel factory that was established at Findon 30 odd years ago just won the award as the Europe's oldest solar panel production company. I mean, it's, it's a, in other words, a lot of that stuff has been fulfilled. It's moved from the periphery. It was considered pretty crazy, you know, that we'd be having solar panels and windmills and uh, needing to move towards organic agriculture. I mean, all of that was in the 70s was considered so out there, you know, people would draw parodies of hippies living and back to the land with all of this stuff. And uh, it's actually starting to happen. Unfortunately, we went 40, 50 years in the wrong direction before it began to happen. And you know, God knows what we're gonna have to go through before global warming and heating gets turned around. So, I mean, you, yeah, I think you, everybody has to go on some kind of an inner journey. I mean, it, it could be that you, you woke up, you just were born with a deep inner connection to your own sense of well-being, or maybe you had a family or parents, you grew up in a community where those kinds of values were validated and you were on a healthy path from an early age. Um, I wasn't, you know, I mean, I, just coming out of, you know, father and grandfather in the thick of horrible world wars, you know, grimy industrial northern cities. I mean, nothing about spirituality. Are you kidding me? You must be bloody joking. I mean, um, so um, I had a long way to go. Um, so I don't think everybody has to go through that. I mean, that's one of the reasons I wrote the book, because, I, you know, I wanted to people to have a sense of... Um, following your heart, you know, following your instincts for adventure, following your instinct for freedom, but that if you do, you're going to go through some rough times, inevitably. Perhaps not so much nowadays, because there's more of a holistic, much more of a holistic culture out there, and so on. But yes, everybody, you know, no matter how privileged, I don't mean financially or spiritually privileged your um, your life circumstances are, I think everybody has to go on a journey of self-discovery, of, uh, of connecting to their authentic self and, um, and developing a self. That's what we're here for. And I, say, I like that phrase, you know, be yourself, everybody else is taken. Um, you know, I remember that coming, that was an insight that came to me when I was living in Bogota. Um, I'm here, the, the greatest gift I can give to this world is to just be myself. And um, that took me, to, I was 25 before that came to me. Um, and, and I think, yeah, some people may have it naturally or organically and, uh, and other people will have to do do the inner work and I, and I don't think it's all just about meditation contemplation it's about living as well isn't it it's about life experience it's about creating it's about building things that you believe in so yes i think you do maybe not as extreme and then of course the one i went through is nothing compared to you know lama govinda or somebody going to uh, tibet in the or, or Alexander David Neal or whoever it may have been, not to mention Madame Blavatsky. Um, so, I mean, obviously mine was nowhere near that ex extreme, but still, I, I don't think today people would, there's not that many remote places left in the world. You know, everything's on the map now, on the beaten track. And, you know, when you, in a sense, because of the uh, internet cafes, et cetera, you will never have that same sense of being totally gone. I mean, I was just gone for months and months with no communication. You couldn't afford a phone call. And uh, so 
it's a different time. But I think the opportunity for that inner development is, is more present and more available to us now than ever before. Perhaps one last question on that. You um, mentioned there that you, at 25, you came to this understanding in Bogota, Colombia, that the best gift you could give the world was being yourself. I'm wondering if you knew what that if you if that came from a uh, understanding of yourself saying this is who I am, this is what I am, and I'm going to give this, or was it more a sense that whoever you were, and the the best possible uh, avenue was to give that. So was there a, was there a sense of who you were that you were giving, or was it more a process uh, that you were committing to? I would say it was more of a sense of who I was. Um, you know, I, I was a sense of deep inner contact with my heart. You know, it's a heart-soul contact, authenticity contact. Um, you know, actually having just a sense of uh, somewhat reasonably formed identity. And, um, you know, so when people are on their deathbeds, the, the most frequent complaint or whatever expression or the, the most frequent uh, expression of regret for dying people is that they never lived the life that they really wanted to live, that they lived the life they felt other people wanted them to live. And um, I think it's important to, to come to your own sense of inner authenticity rather than just taking cues from family, friends, school, you know, uh, the establishment and you know to find your own way so no it, it was definitely associated with some my own uh, sense of um my heart and soul and my spiritual essence and what are the values that uh, are to be found there of love you know ultimately love compassion wisdom freedom all of these things and you spent then a year in colombia which was an education in uh, being streetwise, among other things. I, w I wonder if that set you up for uh, your future time in New York. Well, I think Chicago, yes. I thought about the Chicago in 1771. You know, it was only, what was it, a year, year and a half after the, uh, the Democratic riots, you know, the Democratic Convention in 68 there, you know, the. Uh, the, the, the violence, Cabrini Green neighborhood, you know, which is a um, African-American federal housing project where cops wouldn't even go in there. There were snipers in the towers. I mean, it was a very tense time. The Vietnam War was raging. Of course, we'd had all the assassinations of Martin Luther King and the Kennedys and so on. So it was a very raw time. It was hard for people to remain, for me to remember what America was like in 19, the cusp of the 60s and 70s. It was so filled with uh, rage and all those people being drafted. My first American friend in Chicago had to have himself committed to a mental asylum to escape the draft. And then he escaped out the back window. <laughs> so he, like, he was a very streetwise guy, Dennis. He taught me a lot, an escape lunatic <laughs> in theory. Um, so yes, I think, you know, the Chicago Bogota, I think, I think all these things. Uh, it wasn't sitting in a mountain retreat. I think they did prepare me for New York because New York in 1983, <coughs> excuse me, when uh, we started work on the Open Center, well, it was mayhem, you know. 
It was incredibly high levels of violence and crime and dirt and chaos. And, you know, every time you turned a corner in New York, you know, you had no idea to have your antennae up all the time. Anything could be happening. So, yes, it took a little bit of a chutzpah to start the open set because, you know, that's why the conventional wisdom was get out of here. This is New York. Nobody wants that spiritual stuff here. Um, and of course, it's completely untrue because New York is filled with gifted, deep, uh, outrageous people. There's, and of course, the Open Center has been going for what thirty-eight years or something now. Although it's you know obviously de dealing with challenges now because everything's closed. It's online now, so we'll have to see how it comes back after uh, we get out of this pandemic. But um, yeah, it's a very situation to. I mean, here we are. I'm just saying, New York is the safest big city in America, whereas thirty-five, forty years ago, it was it was it was a watchword for mayhem, chaos and violence and racial tension and dirt. <laughs> there was no air conditioning on the subway. <laughs> you, you know, of course you went into the subway after 11 o'clock at night, you did take your life in your hands in those days. It was, yeah, it was a very different world. So that's the, you know, and, and once, you know, the, and the, the open center, um, the, uh, we launched on a memorable date that I will always remember. It was January, it was a freezing January night. It was January, Friday the 13th, 1984 in New York City. <laughs> so with all the Orwellian overtones of that, you know, um, and the place they said it could never be done, but you know, somebody else said, oh, but that's the path of the shaman. You know, you're going right down into the depths. And, uh, and that's what we've been able to pull off all of these years with great difficulty, but, uh, to have a center, you know, a center for holistic consciousness in the world's not the biggest, but certainly arguably the world's most influential city. It's been quite a quite a task and it continues to be. Mm. Well, you write after your time in Bogota, I had begun to feel that the period of emphasis on my spiritual search was coming to a close and that it was time to serve humanity in some way. I wanted a consciousness skill. I wanted to support the awakening of others while working on my own inner development. And you went back to America and uh, shortly thereafter, or sometime thereafter, uh, you became the assistant program director at the Omega Institute, and then eventually the program director at the Omega Institute. In a time of turmoil, there are just about, of course, you show up uh, around that time. <laughs> Seems to be, you have an instinct for this, but you were there, and uh, it was sort of right on its last uh, uh, amount of money, uh, one summer season to turn it around, and, and you did. Yeah. And that, very interesting indeed. And they're uh, getting into the program directing side of things, um, beginning to getting phone calls. Who's it going to be? Uh, Lama this day, Roshi the next day, uh, Shaman the, the day after that. All these kinds of different people coming together. I imagine that was very interesting. And you write actually of that time. Well, yes, to put it mildly, uh, America was bursting with new spiritual teachers, fresh psychological techniques, innovative approaches to body work and a growing awareness of the value of, of alternative medicine. Shamans were emerging from the jungles of the Amazon, lamas appearing from remote monasteries in the Himalayas. Therapists were exploring the transpersonal dimensions of the psyche. African and Indian ritual dancers were starting to share their art forms. And here's an interesting point. Major honoraria were almost unknown in those days. So many teachers worked virtually for free. And then one more quote, and then I want to ask you about this. You wrote a bit later, my training at Finhorn Oh, we've forgotten that. I've missed that part. You also went to Findhorn. 
Uh, never mind. Just get the book and you'll, you'll, you'll get it all. My training at Finhorn had given me a fine eye for spiritual baloney. And our effort was always to keep the programs authentic, unpretentious, and grounded. Okay, so there's a lot we could say there. Um, I'm curious, you, you really got to see how the sausage is made at that point. That was an initiation, certainly, into that side. Um, I, I'm curious, how do you spot spiritual baloney? And can you talk a little bit about that, that instinct and that radar you've developed uh, beginning, I presume, uh, here at the Omega Institute? Well, beginning just with life. I've just always, um, I've always had an eye for nonsense, you know, for bullshit. I mean, just for inauthenticity, for hype and spin and whatever you want to call it these days. Uh, I, it's, it's, it's just my nature. I just, I've never liked frauds or uh, this kind of thing. But of course, we're, we're talking more about the spiritual sphere here. It's, you know, it, it's cultivating what Rudolf Sana calls your instinct for truth. We can cultivate or develop a healthy instinct for truth. And I mean, I'm just, uh, I just think I'm, for, I'm somebody who's just had a very strong feeling for that. And um, I don't know if I've ever actually engaged in any kind of practices or anything that are intended to develop that other than just living life. <laughs> and, you know, hey, you spend a year in Bogota dealing with a lot of those seedy characters on the streets of Bogota. And you better be pretty sharp about what's really going on here. You know, it's certainly becoming streetwise. <laughs> you, it, because you kind of, it, I hadn't thought it, but it's like becoming spiritually streetwise. Um, you know, on the other hand, it wasn't rocket science in terms of figuring out who was fraudulent. You know, in terms of, let's say you're, you're reviewing somebody who wants to teach or present at Omega or the Open Center or somewhere. Um, you know, you go through various steps along the way. You, you, you ask people to write something uh, describing what it is that they want to teach, what is their background, where else have they taught. So, you know, that just judging from that, you'll already give a, have a good handle on it. Uh, I've been involved with this thing, the International the Holistic Gathering and now the, Holistic Network, the International Holistic Network of Centers. You may have friends, program directors at Esalen or wherever you can call up and just say, just, you know, what can you tell me about this? Um, I would always try to, if the person was in New York, meet the meet somebody in person because you can pick up vibes uh, in person that you can't so easily just start. Because this is before the internet, when suddenly, so it's, it's just done over the phone. Uh, but I always like to have some direct personal contact. Um, what is that thing? You know, it's hard to put your finger on it. Is it? It's just that instinct for something that delights you and moves you and touches you and you think is important and real. And that other instinct is that this is baloney. You know, I mean, that, uh, we, we've heard countless instances of, you know, gurus uh, getting sucked into, um, you know, sexual, inappropriate sexual things because it's so different being in a Western culture. And uh, <laughs> I have shared the stage with a Zen master who just would not shut up. And I was, you know, I was um, at that point, you know, this is Omega when I'm still in my 30s. Um, you know, I was thinking, oh my God, you know, this is a, this is a Zen master. He, he clearly knows a lot more than I do. You know, I'd better just let him go on for as long as he wants. I mean, who am I to interrupt a Zen master? <laughs> 
So, but, you know, having been in this world for a long, long time, I've learned that the titles really don't matter a lot. <laughs> and it's a question of what the individual person is like. And, you know, uh, is it coherent? Is it grounded? Does it feel authentic? Uh, do people feel like they're on an ego trip? Are they primarily focused on their marketing and uh, their numbers? You know, how focused are people on money? You know, as you say, that part you quoted from the book there about uh, people didn't ask for bigger honoraria in those days. You see, Omega was originally an offshoot of um, about the abode of the message Sufi community. So a lot of the people who had taught there had had a connection to Sufism. And they would literally sign their letters um, in the light of the one. <laughs> but within, by the time we got into the 80s and the loads of money, yip, you know, we, we had the yuppies, the emergence of the yuppie and the endless ridiculous focus on Wall Street and making loads of money, you know, instead of going in a green direction. Think if, think if we'd actually gone in the green direction that was totally obvious that we needed to do 40 years ago or all the, whatever it was. So, um, yeah, it, it's, it's a question of, you know, just your intuitive, you, you have to try to develop your sense of the integrity of somebody. I think, you know, listening, I think just being able to just put yourself in a sort of contemplative mode and actually really listen, try to do a deep listening to somebody and to, to try to grasp the essence. I would find that if I'd met somebody and I'd talked to them for, 20 minutes, half an hour or so, often, you know, a pretty clear intuition would come to me about whether this was the right person. I mean, they could be a wonderful person, but it just wouldn't be the right subject to teach at the open center. Or that, you know, this is this is a scam of, you know, I, I use the phrase holistic hustlers because <laughs> there was nowhere in New York like 1984 to experience a holistic hustler. Because this is before email. So I used to come in in the morning, there'd be like 10 letters because everybody wanted to teach at the open center. And, uh, and then if you didn't answer the letter, they'd call. Then if, they didn't if you didn't answer the phone call, they'd show up at the front door. <laughs> you know, New Yorkers have hotspot. So uh, I would have to deal with a lot of holistic hustlers. So I think it was, you know, my own reading, my own attunement to what seemed true and authentic and just a feeling for people who might be well-intentioned, you know, but were a bit inflated. I'm not saying everybody was bad and everybody was a hustler just trying to make money, but you have to distinguish between people who have just become inflated and just have an overly grandiose sense of their own spiritual accomplishment or something, or maybe, maybe it's in some title they have, or maybe it's in the way they present themselves to the world. But I always looked out for that inflation, you know, you, people who present themselves as spiritual teachers who are clearly inflated. So, yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah, that's very interesting. Uh, of course, in booking something like the Open Center or the American Institute or any of the other centers, there is a tension, as you point out. Um, bums on seats, I think, is how you might put it in the UK. Uh, you know, part, part of the reason the Open Center is so prestigious is because of the quality control and its reputation for, you know, quality and um, integrity and so on. On the other hand, uh, presumably one has to fill the schedule. And, you know, you talk about Wall Street on the on the East Coast and certainly on the West Coast, San Francisco, 
um, Silicon Valley, etc., has had an influence uh, on the uh, spiritual centers who do need to bring in the dosh, especially when there are uh, difficulties that occur in these sorts of places, uh, natural disasters it can be, uh, pandemics, uh, all kind of things can occur. And these, these centers can become in, in real trouble. And, and I, I can imagine there, there can be a tension then between uh, how, which way are we going to go? You're right. The noble idealism of the 70s was still in the air and teaching on holistic topics had not yet become a growth industry. The lure of big money that poisoned the 80s and changed the way holistic centers operated was still to make an impact. The first yuppies had just been cited and few people imagined their values would become a prolonged fixture of the American scene. Can you talk a little bit about those competing agendas when running a, a, a center like the Open Center or, or booking for such a place? Yeah, well, you know, it's the art of programming, isn't it? It's more of an art than a science. Uh, a lot of it's guesswork, a lot of it is intuition. Uh, a lot of it is nego one of the skills you need to create these centers is you've got to be able to negotiate as well because you know once people start to get more celebrated then they get agents then their agents contact you and the agents always approach you with a huge amount and uh, well i don't think so you know i think maybe what we can offer is this um yes it, it, this is this is what makes an effective programmer is somebody who can create programs that both have integrity and substance, those were my three watchwords at the start of the Open Center, substance, depth, integrity. You know, I could have, I remember being interviewed by Time Magazine in about the third year of the Open Center in the 80s when they had Shirley MacLaine on the cover holding up a big crystal, you know, and talking about Ramtha, this 35,000 year old, you know, I mean, it's nonsense. I mean, just, I can't stand that stuff, boss. I mean, I, I have, I have as, I have a strong an instinct against flaky, ungrounded fantasy spirituality as I do against grotesque materialism. <laughs> you know, we need the balance between the two. They can, they can both be uh, equally dangerous. So, you know, you have to try to find that happy medium where something uh, is something of real substance and value and yet still has the capacity to, to draw. And you know, you fall flat on your face, you take risks. My philosophy always was to, to have 10% of the programs be a risk, people you'd never tried before. Um, and sometimes it would work brilliantly, you'd sell it out. And sometimes you'd have to cancel it because nobody would show up. But 90% of the programs you would be aiming to get some kind of decent uh, attendance. Uh, to me, it's... If you lose your integrity and you just start doing stuff because it makes money, I mean, everybody knows what it's like to be under pressure there. And um, you just have to do your best to resist that. Um, and of course, you know, an important part of it is the, the marketing and having the money to do the marketing and how all of that has changed in the internet age, et cetera. It used to be, you know, the Open Center did a big paper catalog. I think we've done something like a hundred catalogs every three months, every four months. Uh, and that was the, now it's, of course, it's all internet stuff primarily, but it's a tension, you know, what can you say? It's a, it's a, you have to balance it. But the important thing is to not lose your integrity because you lose that. And what have you got left? What's the whole, what's the whole point that you're doing it? You know, you're not, if you want to make money, just go down to wall street there and, you know, 
I personally never spent a day in corporate America. I, either I would have walked out or they'd have given me the bums rush. So I'm glad that uh, it's certainly not my scene. But, uh, you know, New York is probably the wealthiest city in the world. And uh, there's no opportunities to make money, but that's certainly not what the Open Center is about. Hmm. But it has to, you know, it's been very challenging to keep going over all these years. And right now, especially with the pandemic and everything being online, uh, it's challenging and the, and the future is not fully certain. So we take it one day at a time. Well, it's fascinating to hear you reflect on those themes. Um, I, I'm looking at the time here and I think we'll uh, perhaps finish soon. I might have to uh, petition you for a sequel actually, because there's still a lot we haven't talked about. We haven't talked about 1989 and what we'll just call the Tibet incident. Oh, right. <laughs> let's, just, let's just call it that. Yeah, <laughs> but I do, I do have a couple of... Uh, uh, why am I being so uh, circumspect about that? Well, it was a, it's a real adventure and I don't want to give it short shrift. So that's, that's why I'm saying that to the listeners who are wondering what I'm referring to. Um, let's just say that Ralph went on a mission for the Nechung Oracle. So we'll leave it at that for now. And perhaps we can talk about that another time. But there are a couple of uh, points from your memoir that I'd like to ask you about. First of all, the word erotic. <laughs> you use the word erotic quite yeah, a bit yeah. in this book, and you use it to describe certain women you've been in relationship with, uh, also cultures and places such as Latin America, the West Coast, West Coast counterculture you refer to as erotic. Um, in today's tone, if you like, of... Uh, what should we call it? Spirituality, self-help, whatever we could call it, um, holistic, um, you know, movements. The erotic, I think, can sometimes be rather sanitized and even at times pathologized. You talked about guru sex scandals and so on. And of course, that that's looms rather large, I think, in a way that perhaps it didn't in the 70s. Not to say it wasn't happening, but it, it I don't think it, it seems from what I've heard, wasn't quite as uh, looming large in people's awareness. I'm curious, can you say something about what you mean when you use the word erotic, what that has meant to you throughout your life, and where do you see its role, if at all, in the culture today? Well, that's, that's a great question, Steve. Nobody's ever asked me that one before. You know, I mean, yes, I mean, I realize that phrase, the erotic word, does crop up. I didn't do it consciously. It's just, a, it wasn't a deliberate literary strategy. I think it's just the way my mind works. Um, well... You know, I'm, uh, most of us, certainly I'm not interested in living a monastic life. And I don't think that spirituality has to be synonymous with asceticism. Um, and that, you know, we all have to be pale people, you know, rising and doing incredible meditations and prayers at all hours of the day and night and really d denying our bodies. And I mean, that's an extreme, of course, but I've just always felt that, you know, sexuality and spirituality are all part of the same spectrum. Uh, I mean, obviously the erotic and sexuality is one of the, it, it's the most, one of the most common ways for people to reach an ecstatic state and to, to have an experience of bliss. Um, so it's always held a very powerful charge for me. That's just uh, my nature. Um, you know, in the open center, we've been teaching Tantra for years. I remember when we started, we did the first Tantric workshops 
<laughs> sometime when was that in in the late 80s or something but uh, some people were outraged oh, how could you do this um etc um but it's ridiculous you know sexuality is completely part of our lives i mean how can we be whole human beings if we're not and as demon of course that was freud's great insight it's the suppression of sexuality that has produced all the neurosis and craziness not to mention you know the violence and the macho behavior and and you know the abuse of women and all the rest of it so having a healthy relationship to the erotic is to me is uh, it's a crucial thing it's a beautiful thing i think i think the erotic is a gift to be enjoyed and our failure to enjoy it in, a, in an open way uh, has produced countless crimes, catastrophes, nightmares, repressions, you know, psychoses. <laughs> so I think, you know, I think having a healthy relationship to the erotic and the sexual is just, it's, it's part of what we need to do as a culture. It's part of developing a more holistic culture is that, we, you know, we respect our bodies and, um, and we appreciate them and we don't, you know, uh, think that they have to be suppressed, you know, with or ignored or, or that it's somehow evil or wicked if we're sexual people you can't be spiritual i mean I, there must be people around somewhere in the church probably who still think this way but uh, i mean it's ridiculous i mean it's certainly the west coast counterculture that uh in, in the 70s was it was definitely a counter that of course uh, you think of well woodstock you know taking their clothes off and uh, all those great sexy rock and roll stars and the music itself was pulsing with vitality and uh, rock and roll is always going to be about sexuality to some extent and i mean that was what got me through my teenage years i will always be grateful to rock and roll um so yeah, that's what comes to mind. It's just, um, it's a beautiful thing if, and if we don't misuse it. And, and I think we're living in an extraordinary time for women now. Uh, I think there's never been a time for so much freedom for women and self-expression. Of course, we know there's all kinds of, uh, you know, uh, communication problems around that too. But I do think it is, I think this is a real time for women's empowerment. In, in terms of, you know, they have, uh, of course, they've had the vote since the 1920s. They, uh, more and more economic freedom, so they're not just dependent upon husbands and so on. And I think, uh, you know, more and more freedom to live their own lives and to be respected for whatever choices they make in their own sexuality. And of course, you know, the you know, gay marriage and all of that, the way that has become, that's amazing how rapidly that moved ahead. So, yeah, I mean, you know, apart from, you know, the Harvey Weinsteins of this world and all the people who are just, just continuing to abuse women and take advantage of them, I think that there is, uh, well, just developing a, a healthy and appreciative and approach to the, the, I think, you know, sexuality is a magnificent thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's a deep thing. And um, it's an integral part of a healthier future. Fascinating. So perhaps the last question then. Uh, towards the end of, of the book, you write about this idea of the third act. 
and you write, I came to ponder my life after 30 years in New York. Perhaps it was time to find a new balance. After decades of the Saturnine weight of responsibility on my shoulders, multiple deadlines and mercurial phone calls, a constant stream of messages to return and catalogues to produce, it was time to enter a new phase. And you, you, you write later, um, if life is a three-act play, I am now entering the third act, one of unknown duration. My task now is to find a balance between the inner and outer realms of existence, between spiritual contemplation and societal engagement, between pursuing wisdom and practicing love, and between the multiple ideas and ways of being coming to us all now from the West, East, North and South, so that a free, tolerant and multicultural world can evolve further in this century for the benefit of all. So this book, as I mentioned, published in 2015. What can you say now uh, about the third act? What has the third act been? Where do you see it going uh, for yourself? And also, I'm, I'm actually also curious, and this is perhaps a different question, but I'm also curious, looking ahead into the future, seeing as you have so many big shifts in the culture and being in the vanguard of many of them, you've made the point elsewhere that a lot of the things that you, in fact, you said it here, a lot of the things you were promoting and so on at Omega and the, um, the open center, very fringe, but now have become so mainstream that they're almost, they're, they're almost now a growth industry in themselves. They're almost sort of become commodified to, to some extent, or at least the possibility exists for that. So you've seen a lot of big changes. So I'm curious about your own, own third act and also what you see as you look forward uh, for the culture. Well, it's a, it's a slower process than I anticipated when, when the book was published. Um, you know, the third act for me is more to do with doing stuff like this, which I've really enjoyed. Thank you so much, by the way, Steve. This has been a really enjoyable, excellent interview. Um, it's more writing. You know, like I, just, I wrote this whole thing about Robert Bly today, just a small piece. Uh, it's more that in, it's more my own individual speaking. Uh, it's less organizing. Um, it's you know, obviously the pan the last couple of years with the pandemic. I mean, all that's been put on hold. We're all just sitting in our apartments, or you know, doing everything on Zoom. So there's hardly any social interactivity. Um, so exactly how that third act is going to play out. It's not as clear. It, when, when, I, when I wrote that six years ago, I probably had a clearer sense that things were going to unfold in a more rapid way than they have. Um, because I'm still doing, you know, I'm still running as well, when we're through the pandemic, I'm still doing esoteric quests, still doing conferences on dying. Uh, and, you know, my, I want to do a big public education program in psychedelics right now where we really go through the whole history because they, you know maybe not in britain but in america now there's a huge psychedelic renaissance now and uh we did we did a big six-part series earlier in the year looking at the you know the, the uses in um in the pre-columbian cultures of the western hemisphere and also as possible uses in mysteries like uh, eleusis in the where they have found traces of ergot in one of the ceremonial cups used in some of the mediterranean mysteries so i'm i'm very interested in doing a big public education program that tells people about the history of where this all came from you know hoffman and uh, synthesizing lsd etc 
um, and all the extraordinary scientific work that went on in the 50s, Humphrey Osmond in Saskatchewan, Aldous Huxley, the coining of the term psychedelic, you know, and then, then the, the huge scientific breakthroughs that we've referenced already going on in the universities right now, tremendous results, and then the future, which, has, which partially relates to one of your questions there, the commodification of spiritual experience. Rick, uh, Rick Doblin, who was on the event last night, um, it's to do with, oh, I have to, I want to recommend a film, Psychedelia. Uh, we had the, the director of it, Pat Murphy, uh, with us. He's in LA, but I, it's an excellent one hour film that really tells the whole story of psychedelics. Um, but we want to do more of that, you know, more of where it came from, where it's going. But as Rick Doblin was saying last night, there are now 400 companies seeking to make money off psychedelics. So this is raising major questions about commodification, capitalism and spiritual experience. Um, you know, you've got to raise funds to get these clinical trials done like the big one on MDMA and PTSD. So somebody's got to come up with that money, but then, you know, the usual model of American capitalism, they're expecting a big return on it without turning into some nightmarish pharmaceutical company. So this, these are big, big questions in the future. Um, in terms of society at large, it is, yes, everything the Open Center was into when we started 37, 38 years ago, it's, it's everywhere now. It's almost to the point of parody, you know, that's why you get mindfulness and so on. And you get every, people refer to it now as the wellness industry. What bothers me is all the, you know, the newspapers writing about, they buy into the most fatuous aspects of it all. The very stuff that I've spent my life keeping out of places like the Open Center and acting as if it, nobody has the discernment to tell the difference between what is authentic and what is inauthentic, what's some new age baloney or some self-promoting hype and what is actually of great benefit to the culture. There are people who are experts at this who've been doing it for years, you know, and it, the media tends to sensationalize things because they're looking for a good story. Not everybody, there's plenty of good people in the media, but, uh, you know, people look for the dark side, the latest scandals and so on. Um, but in, but in terms of, look, you know, the wind, I mean, the greening of the economy, I mean, just creating it, it's phenomenal, you know, I mean, yes, there's a long way to go, but and we should have started doing this over 40 years ago, if not earlier. But just the fact, you know, the greening, the fact that the electric, just it's, you know, what Biden did, the electrification of uh, cars. So, so creating a green future, green New Deal, I mean, that was all considerably totally marginal and crazy back in the 70s and early 80s, you know. Um, and I think just just also a lot of more respect for indigenous cultures. I think, you know, I mean, all this awful stuff about the native kids in Canada who were taken away from their kids and taken into these awful schools and many of them died and were just buried in unmarked graves, you know, not allowed to speak their own languages. Of course, the English did the same thing in Wales and, uh, an island, etc. So it's certainly not just in North, in North America, but all of that is changing. I think there's a, there's a much deeper respect for the wisdom of indigenous cultures. You know, we really have to go to them now to learn again how to live in harmony with the earth. And you know, stuff like acupuncture. I remember when we first started teaching, we used to have Dan, you know Daniel Goldman who wrote the book on emotional intelligence. Daniel Goldman was our original mindfulness meditation teacher at the Open Center. But, you know, people used to say meditation, it's, you know, that's, uh, it's just a fancy word for sleep. 
And, you know, so a lot of these things, it was just total skepticism. It's baloney. It's a bunch of new age fantasists. They need to get back to reality. You got to get a job, <laughs> make something out of your life. Um, so wherever you look across that whole spectrum of greening, health, spirituality, contemplation, look at the impact that Bill Moyers series did, uh, Bill Moyers series of interviews with Joseph Campbell, what was that, 20 years ago? Just, you know, outstanding, outstanding people. What did that do to bring? The fact that Star Wars was inspired by um, the hero with a thousand faces and Joseph Campbell, and so I believe was Mad Max originally. <laughs> I love the road warrior. <laughs> so, you know, the fact that these deeper insights around mythology, the hero's journey, the uh, are permeating the culture even at the most popular levels. Look at something like Oprah. I don't know how big Oprah is in the UK, but, uh, and of course now she's not what she was 10 years ago, but she did an enormous amount to bring writers like James Hillman and, and Thomas More and so on, deep psychological writers into more mainstream culture. And all you had to do was appear on Oprah and you were number one in the New York Times bestsellers. So I do think we've come a, we've come a huge distance. And there are the contrary forces, you know, the counter forces. Um, I think Rudolf Steiner was right when he said uh, in 1919, right after the First World War, that we would face four primary obstacles that we would have to overcome. He said, uh, first of all, grotesque forms of nationalism and tribalism. Uh, secondly, religious fundamentalism. Thirdly, uh, the primacy of economic values in all spheres, look at corporate globalization. And fourth, and this is where his sense of humor comes in, the superstition of scientific materialism. <laughs> That's a good one, isn't it? <laughs> They're like, you know, of course, we're the space cadets, we're the superstitious ones. And yet it's turning more and more that the world needs to move in the direction that these centers and these writers and these more conscious people have been pointing to for a long time. So I think we're in a struggle, you know, it's, it ain't gonna be easy. Will the, especially with this, the rise of fascism, who would have thought that would have come out so quickly from nowhere just after Trump. Uh, Trump, you know, undermining the bases of American democracy, 70 odd million people voting, it's unbelievable. I mean, just how easy it is to corrupt American politics and American freedom. And of course, the way it's being done in association with the religious right. I did a big conference in partnership with the City University Graduate Center 15 years ago. It was called Examining the Real Agenda of the Religious Far Right. And uh, it was about this phenomenon, dominionism, Christian reconstructionism, it's Christian theocracy. And uh, they don't believe in the separation of church and state. We now have six of our nine Supreme Court justices who are members of uh, a very reactionary body. And uh, so it's a struggle. You know, we've got all the good things that you and I have been talking about today. And there are all these, the forces Again, has the pandemic slowed us down enough to actually reassess what we're doing and to move towards a more sustainable future? Or are we just gonna go back to that craze business as usual of trashing the planet and the biosphere and for what? To enrich 1% of the population? I don't think so. So I'm hoping that this can be some kind of turning point for us, but we're in, we're in a struggle. It's gonna go on for the rest of my life. and. Uh, but hey, you know, never say die, keep on trucking. I mean, uh, I have no intention of giving up. And um, it's been 
it's been a very validating experience to go from, you know, the remoteness, the isolation, the loneliness of, say, being in Vancouver in 1971 and not really knowing if I was on a path to psychosis or to enlightenment, having had these experiences and finding that little bookstore around the corner. I mean, it, it's been a long, long journey from there to seeing the, the necessary greening of society and the widespread understanding of the necessity for some kind of spiritual path and psychological growth and a more holistic approach to health and well-being, etc. So I think we're in it. You know, we don't know. I think stuff like the Open Center and your podcast, are, we're all doing our bit. And uh, we just have to keep at it because there's going to be no shortage of regressive powers, especially all the autocratic powers uh, that are going on. But, you know, you look at I've been in China a few times in the last few years and, you know, you see Xi Jinping and all the repressive stuff, Hong Kong and the Uyghurs and all of that. And it gives you and I carried a very negative view of China for many years because I was there at the time of Tiananmen Square. Well, we will do that on another one, Steve. But I was in Tibet at the time of the Tiananmen Square massacre. So um, and yet having been to China, I wound up giving the opening talk uh, outside Beijing uh, to the about four years ago to the first holistic international holistic wellness forum in china there were 700 people there it was unbelievable it was like a pink floyd concert the cameras the lights the and then, you know, i met lots and lots and lots of wonderful chinese people and you know they because you know maslow's hierarchy of human needs hundreds of thousands of millions have been lifted out of poverty but you know they've they're not concerned so much with survival anymore, but with questions of meaning and self-actualization. So it's uh, to bear in mind, you, know, you read the newspapers, I would think so myself that China's just turning into this awful, you know, autocratic, repressive society. And of course there is that dimension there unquestionably, and it's very powerful. But just as a counterbalance in thinking about it is, there are millions of wonderful Chinese people who are really pretty much just like you and me. You know, they're waking up to the need for meaning. They're on the spiritual path. They're, you know, they're reading Buddhism. You know, they're trying to get hold of uh, whatever books they can that have been translated. You know, in other words, the same phenomenon that we experience in the West of this deeper search and the necessity for a more holistic future, it's going on even in a country as seemingly um, immune to all of this is China. They're not. It's not. I really learned that. You know, I, I spent a month there meeting holistic pioneers all over China and it's like, you know, it ain't <laughs> Xi Jinping is who he is and the Communist Party and they are doing their thing. Yes. But there are other elements as well. So it's, uh, as well. So it's just a reason for hope. It's a more mysterious world than we think it is. So I, I remain positive and and yet I know that it's a, it's a tough struggle and we ain't through it yet. Well, this has been uh, just a fascinating conversation, Ralph. Thank you so much. I would uh, like to invite you. I'd love to have you back for a, a sequel. I mean, there's so much we can talk about. Uh, the Tibet incident, as I mentioned before, this business of uh, Tibet Tennis Square. I'd also like to ask you, actually, in more detail about your Art of Dying conferences. That's something very interesting we haven't touched on. And also, um, you write in the book about a network of centers, these various different centers and how they network and so on. But also something I've noticed is it seems to be a network of friends and contacts, these people you meet along the way. And that's not so explicitly stated there, but you're always referring to them. And I'd like to ask you a bit about that, um, how one cultivates that, uh, how those sorts of things come about, and some of your insights from um, a life of cultivating a network of friends as well as a network of these centers. 
But anyway, so perhaps a uh, sequel if you're willing. Yeah, but, uh, absolutely, Steve. I've really enjoyed it. Um, it's been a lot of fun. Great. We talked to you at a houseboat in Derbyshire. <laughs> you know, I, I, uh, it's good to get out of my New York mindset and step into a, a lot more lovely, uh, gracious, nature-filled reality. So good. Well, thanks very much. I wish you all the best. And should we just say, look, uh, if anybody wants to buy the book, again, it, it's called uh, The Jeweled Highway on the quest for a life of meaning. It's, you can get it on Amazon. That's the easiest way to do it. And uh, I hope some of you will. Indeed. A Jeweled Highway, A Quest for a Life of Meaning. I recommend everyone checks it out. I mean, we've really just scratched the surface of some of the tales in there with the uh, remarkable book. Ralph White, thank you very much. Thank you, Steve. Have a lovely day. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.